All right, I'm Chuck with Team Faith. Thanks a lot for coming out here tonight. It's a beautiful, perfect day at the racetrack, aside from all, a little bit of dust, but it's good to be here and uh, excited for what God's doing on this series and doing with us here tonight. Um, just by way of announcement, uh, a couple couple of things. Number one, you guys are awesome because at the end of every chapel service, somebody here always takes the initiative and passes the hat and takes up a collection for this ministry, and that's actually what brings us, brings me back to the races. That's how I'm able to afford to get here, and I uh, really, truly appreciate it. To make things a little bit easier, a couple people have suggested put out a donations box, so I have done that. It's right there, so you don't have to feel awkward about who to give your money to, just stuff it in the stuff it in a little box there and uh, I'll get that at the end and that'll go towards a good cause um, also you'll see that we got a new wrap on the uh, on the box fan this week which uh, very thankful to SSI graphics for donating that and making this thing look good you know um, if you've been around for a little bit you know that I've been doing a fundraiser to replace uh, we had a, a motorhome die last year and uh, started going to the races in a van and then this one was given to me for the interim Still need to replace this one. It's got a lot of miles and some, some issues, but it looks like it'll hold together for another year so we're able to represent our sponsors well and grateful for that. Um, and with that, that's the end of announcements, you know? You didn't even have a chance to take a nap yet. So, uh, Lord, thanks a lot for today. Just thanks for bringing us to this beautiful place. Thanks for, uh, I guess it's 20 years running now that we've been able to come out to the Turner Farm and be here at Big Buck, and it's such a beautiful place and uh, hold special memories. And, we're grateful just to be a part of this, and would you just meet us here tonight? Give me the words to say. Give me a clear mind uh, to communicate your truth. I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight, or this evening, I'm going to start uh, what I hope to be a three-part series called Foundations of Faith. And I know that sounds really formal, like we're in church almost. But uh, every year, it seems like at the end of the year, I go back through my notes and say, all right, what did we talk about this year? And I'm always hitting on this idea of why do I believe what I believe? And we're going to hit on that a little bit for the next three weeks. And this is a, a core um, part of my life, is why do I believe what I believe? Because as a kid, I grew up in church. And I was just always told, well, this is what you believe. And I came to learn that that wasn't good enough. Blind faith only took me so far. And by the time I was 14, 15 years old, I started to understand that uh, I believe this because I've always told this, but everybody else says this, and everybody else is having this much fun. And I started to uh, start walking a shake, down a shaky road. And uh, so now, after the last 10 years of my life where I hit my knees and said, all right, God, I am all in for you. I know what I believe, and I'm very diligent to learn why I believe what I believe. And so it's kind of a recurring theme with me. I'm very passionate about this. Because most pastors, when you go to church, they say, this is what you believe, and so therefore this is how you behave. And so that's what our lessons are always about. Is like, here's how we behave because this is what we believe. What I've come to understand is you don't have to tell me how to believe once I really understand what I believe. And if I break it down to a, a, a super simple level, I believe in gravity. And because I believe in gravity, it shapes the way I make life choices. All right, I was uh, where I live in Sail Creek, uh, Tennessee, which is just north of Chattanooga. Most neighborhoods, if you go out of your house and you turn right, you turn right, you turn right, you turn right, you end up back at your house, right? In order for me to do that, with the first road that I come to, every time I want to turn right, it takes 45 minutes to get around Sail Creek Mountain. Go all the way up, 2,000 feet elevation change, come all the way back around. On top of that mountain, there's this, uh, I discovered this a couple weeks ago. There's an old fire tower up there. 
that has been abandoned and you're not supposed to climb it. And they've taken out all the platforms. All that's left are stairs and no platforms. So when you walk up the stair and you go back up this way, there's no platform to walk around on. You just kind of have to tow your way around on this angle iron. The whole thing was built out of angle iron. It looks rickety. People have shot it with their guns, and so there's bullet holes all through the, the foundation supports there. It looks sketchy. But I went up there with a couple of buddies, and uh, they, they had said, well, let's climb to the top. We, they'd grown up in that area. They knew that they could climb to the top, and because of my belief in gravity, might be a little bit more secure in your belief in gravity, I'm a little nervous around heights. And so I climbed it, but I was very, very cautious because I believe in the laws of gravity and how that applies to my life. And so I'm holding on. I'm very careful about where I put my foot. I'm not opposed to bungee jumping, skydiving, cliff diving, done most of that before, but I'm very careful and I'm very aware of the laws of gravity. It, it, it guards my behavior. And so when it comes to living my life, the same could be said. Because I don't guard my behavior because you tell me to guard my behavior. I guard it because of what I truly believe. And I think that that will become evident as we go through this. Because uh, there are some people that don't believe in God. And there are some people that say that, that, uh, that if I do believe in God, then I'm chasing a pipe dream. Psalm chapter um, 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. But there are some people that say, God... You can't believe in God. Matter of fact, ever since I was in high school, when I was in high school at a public school, we learned about evolution. And of course, I didn't believe in that, but there were some very compelling arguments that made me kind of wonder, well, what is it that they're talking about? So we're going to dive into that a little bit tonight, because here's what's been said, and this has been said for a long time. I'm going to quote uh, evolutionary biologist Ernest Mayer. He said this in Scientific American in the July 2000 edition. So this is, this is old, old news, what Ernest Mayer said. He said, no educated person any longer questions the validity of the so-called theory of evolution, which we now know to be a simple fact. When you turn on the television, when you read any news articles, when you read, uh, when, when you see a program on History Channel, National Geographic, or any of, of that, it is always assumed that here's the fact: the Earth has been around for millions or billions of years, and here's the fact of how this all happened uh, back when the dinosaurs went extinct in the Ice Age. It's all presented as fact. Yet a creationist or a Christian says, "Well, I don't believe that." Well, you're a fool, because here's the fact of how of how evolution actually happened. And so I'm going to take you through just a few of them, just a handful of things that we've probably been taught, things that you've been taught growing up, and I want to look at them. And I want to look at them with an objective point of view, not just because I'm saying so, but look at it with an objective point of view. Number one, I remember learning about the test tube of life. Back in 1953, Stanley Miller at the University of Chicago, he duplicated what he believed was the early Earth atmosphere, and he applied electricity to it in order to simulate lightning. And out of that lightning, in that atmosphere, he created a red goo. And in that red goo, there were amino acids. We know what amino acids are. They're the building blocks of protein, which are the building blocks of life. So, wow, if you can duplicate that, atmosphere in a test tube and some electrical charge and lightning, and you can make life, doesn't that sound credible? The tree of life, Darwin. Maybe you've seen this. This, this uh, tree of life, it's in almost every textbook in America. I've seen this, this is the tree of life, the Darwin tree of life. He, he presented it in the 1800s with his origin of the species. At the very bottom, he says that we all evolved from this one little thing. And from this one little thing came plants and animals and insects. We all have 
a single uh, origin of life per evolutionfact.com. And this is the current modern website, FAQ.com, evolutionfact.com. says, all cells on Earth, from our white blood cells to simple bacteria to cells in the leaves of tree, are capable of reading any piece of DNA from any life form on Earth. This is very strong evidence for a common ancestor from which all life descended. Because we all have DNA. And we can all process DNA. Very, so we must have a common ancestor. Okay? Compelling evidence for, for uh, evolution. Number three is the common ancestry. Right along with this chart, the common ancestry. Ernest Heckel's drawings. Maybe you've heard of this. Maybe you've seen it in a textbook. It'll be really small in the back there. But there's this chart that maybe we've seen before, and it's it's got a it's got a drawing, and these are all the um, th this is the uh, the beginnings of life. So the embryos is what we've got here. We've got the the embryo of a fish, a salamander, a chicken, a human, a bunch of different embryos. They all look exactly the same. They've all got these little wrinkles on them that are supposedly gill slits, and so we all came from basically the same very same beginning. And Ernest Heckel's uh, drawings have been reproduced and duplicated in many, many different textbooks throughout the, throughout the years. Again, from evolutionfact.com, human beings have approximately 96% of genes in common with chimpanzees, about 90% of genes in common with cats, 80% with cows, 75% with mice, and so on. This does not prove that we all evolved from chimpanzees or cats, only that we shared a common ancestor in the past. And the amount of difference between our genomes corresponds to how long ago our genetic lines diverged. So in other words, we all came from the same place, and our genes are similar, and they drop off and become more dissimilar the farther down the line they get, the farther down that tree of life that we get. The missing link fossil. It's always been told that, uh, that with evolution... We changed life forms. We changed from one thing to the next, and so what we're going to need to have is a fossil that shows that change. Well, it's uh, the Archaeopteryx. I can barely say that, but the Archaeopteryx, it's, uh, it's Greek for wing, ancient wing. It's the most uh, famous fossil in the world, and there have been, since the, since the discovery of the first one, there have been ten more found. I don't know if you can see this, but this is the original Archaeopteryx that was found. It's a, uh, it's a fossil of this bird-like reptile creature, kind of half bird, half uh, reptile, and there's a recreation of it. This bird has feathers, but it looks like it's got a, a reptile tail and it's got claws on its wing. So for, for a long time, and even modern day, we say, well, this must be the missing link that bridges the evolutionary theory. Of course, one of the most compelling arguments for evolution is carbon dating. We all know, if you look it up on, uh, on Google, you just you type in, how old is the Earth? It immediately pops up that the Earth is 4.54 billion years old. And you can, you can read the Wikipedia article. It's, uh, quote, according to radiometric dating and other sources of evidence, Earth was formed about 4.54 billion years ago, period. Not that that's the theory of it, but because we have scientific methods that can date plants, animals, trees, rocks, and everything out there, we know that the Earth is four and a half billion years old. You add all that up, you say, wow, that's some pretty compelling evidence. And if you take it at face value, for example, if you take it like I took my faith at face value because somebody told me that, I believe that, but when somebody shook the tree and I fell down? Well, the same thing could be said if you believe all these facts about evolution. 
So what I want to do right now is shake the tree just a little bit. I'm not a scientist. I'm not really all that smart of a guy. But I've done a little bit of digging, a little bit of research. Um, Richard Dawkins, uh, he's, he's, a, he's the, probably the foremost leading atheist of today. Uh, he's been around for a very, very long time. And back in 1994, Richard Dawkins says, The more that you understand the significance of evolution, the more you are pushed away from an agnostic position and towards atheism. Agnostic simply means, well, I don't know. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there is. It don't know. Don't care. Richard Dawkins says, the more you study this science, the more you're going to be moved towards an atheist position. Well, I want to study that science for just a minute. And one of the guys that I, t- I paid close attention to is a guy named Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an editor for, uh, or rather he was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. He grew up in a Christian home. He grew up going to Sunday school and going to church on Sundays. But when he was in high school, he was presented actually with these five things that I just read off to you, these five proofs of evolution. He was presented with those in high school, and he said, that's it, I'm done with God. There is no God. And uh, he said that he related in one of his books, The Case for the Creator, he related in that book that he would ask his Sunday school teacher questions and, and try to push back a little bit on what he was being taught. He wanted to know why. And he was never given a satisfactory answer. But when he got into high school, he was given all these proofs that there is no God. He said, well, that's it. I am now an atheist. And he went out and pursued the atheist life. Matter of fact, this is what he says. Um, he says, I revel in my newly achieved freedom from God's moral strictures. For me, living without God meant living 100% for myself. Freed from someday being held accountable for my actions, I felt unleashed to pursue personal happiness and pleasure at all costs. Well, I get that. That would be kind of nice. I kind of lived that way myself a little bit. All right, God, you ain't doing for me. If you're really there, you ain't working for me, so I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to do it on my own. It was very liberating for a moment. Strobel went on to later investigate the icons of evolution, and he spoke with Jonathan, Jonathan Wells, who has two PhDs. Jonathan Wells wrote a book in the year 2000 called Icons of Evolution. And so Lee Strobel sat down with him, and he, and he presented, hey, here are, here are four or five arguments that really compelled me to turn away from God. What do you know about these, and what do you say to these? And number one was the Miller experiment. Remember Stanley Miller made that, uh, made that uh, primordial soup and charged it with electricity and got amino acids? Well, the fact of that is Miller chose a hydrogen-rich mixture of methane, ammonia, and water vapor. However, there's no evidence that that was the mixture at the beginning of the Big Bang. If we assume that the Big Bang actually happened, it would not have methane, ammonia, and water vapor. Matter of fact, uh, people, the scientists today believe that there was very little hydrogen in the atmosphere because it would have escaped into space. Instead, it was probably carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and water vapor. And so when you replay the experiment in those conditions, you get those conditions together, you charge it with a little bit of electricity, you do not get amino acids. However, our textbooks, as they explain the Miller experiment, they say, yeah, you change the elements, you still get organic matter. Do you know what that organic matter is? It's formaldehyde and cyanide. It's used for embalming dead bodies. It kills life. And that's what we're being taught, is the beginning of life. It's stuff that kills life. kind of makes me take pause and say, wait a second, I'm a little bit of offended. I'd never heard that before. Number two, the tree of life, Darwin's theory, predicts a long and gradual divergence from a common ancestor with differences so slow that they slowly emerge into a different life form. 
problem is, is that there's absolutely no fossil evidence for that. I know I mentioned the Archaeopteryx, and I'll come back to that. But there's no fossil evidence for the, the um, change, the slow and gradual change of life forms. Instead, there's the exact opposite. It's called the Cambrian Explosion. In scientific communities, I, I suppose it's referred to as the Big Bang of Fossils. This, uh, this was actually known at the time that Darwin wrote his Origin of the Species. The biological Big Bang, the fossil record shows some jellyfish, sponges, and worms, and then the Cambrian explosion happens with all kinds of life, insects, crabs, starfish, and Jonathan Wells explains that there, there's, this is absolutely contrary to Darwin's Tree of Life, which says that you'll have a slow and gradual change into those kind of organisms, and yet... In the Cambrian explosion, all those organisms are mixed in together in our fossil record. Well, how did that happen? If it was a slow and gradual change, how did all of a sudden these fossils show up? It says that these animals are so fundamentally different in their body parts, they appear fully developed, and all of a sudden, that paleontologists have called it the single most spectacular phenomenon of the fossil record. As for common ancestry, I was having a discussion with one of my... Um, one of my buddies that I knew from the Army, we had reconnected a few years ago on Facebook, as Facebook is good for doing, and uh, he said, you know, I, I have to believe in evolution, because I was studying the tiger snake of Australia, and did you know that the tiger snake on the main body of Australia is different from the tiger snake that's found on Tasmania Island? So, well, Tony, that's actually, that's no problem with me. That's called adaptation. A tiger snake is still a tiger snake. A snake is a snake. Matter of fact, a feline is still a feline. So you've got tigers and, and kitty cats and lions. They're all feline, but they're not dogs. That's called adaptation. And so the belief of creationists, like myself, would be that God wired us with genetics at the very beginning of time so we're able to adapt and change, and that's why we see all the change. Americans today are taller than they were 100 years ago. We're better fed. We've adapted to our environment. It's just, just it's called adaptation, not evolution. It's not that the tiger snake became a shark, which became something else. It's still a tiger snake. As for Heckel's embryos, that little picture that shows you all these uh, all these embryos that look exactly the same at their very beginning of at, at their very beginning of life. Shockingly, they were faked from the very beginning. They were faked. Heckel, uh, as soon as Heckel introduced his chart, his colleagues called him out on it and said, well, that's not what the embryos look like. And they took him to task. And yet, here we are over 100 years later, and we're still talking about Heckel's embryos. And um, Lee Strobel said that as a student in the 60s and 70s, this led me to Darwinism and then on to, to atheism. Jonathan Wells, in his, uh, in his um, review with with uh, Lee Strobel said that he recently graded 10 textbooks, and this was just about 10 years ago that this interview took place. Jonathan Wells graded 10 textbooks that talked about Heckel's embryos. And of the 10, eight of them had an exact replica of Heckel's embryos. And the other two had a vague statement saying that although these drawings are not fully accurate, they teach a concept that's basically true. So in other words, we know it's a lie, but we believe the theory, therefore we're going to adjust, to, we're, we're going to do you the favor and draw it as it should be drawn. And yet it's completely false. As for those gill slits that are supposedly in those embryos, at that stage of life, a fish does not have gill slits. They're not gill slits. It's just the basic wiring that begins life. The Archaeopteryx. 
that uh, that funky looking bird that we talked about a second ago that's half reptile and half bird, right? Darwin's Origin of the Species, first published in 1859, he conceded, the most obvious and gravest objection which can be argued against my theory was the fossil record failed to back up his hypothesis. He figured that, uh, he said, why? If species have descended from other species by, by fine gradations, do we not have everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? And he predicted that future discoveries would vindicate his theory. Two years later, this Archaeopteryx, the winged creature, was found. It's got to be the missing link between the reptiles and birds. It's half bird, half reptile. But Jonathan Wells says that's not even close. It's an extinct bird. Birds are different from reptiles in many important ways. Their breeding system, their bone structure, their lungs, their distribution of weight, muscle. The Archaeopteryx is a bird. Larry Martin, a paleontologist from the University of Kansas, said in 1985, and this is a long time ago, 1985, he said clearly the Archaeopteryx is not an ancestor of any modern birds. It is instead a member of a totally extinct group of birds. Not half reptile, not half bird, just an extinct bird. We have lots of extinct animals that we're aware of these days. And while I'm at it, talking about uh, these transitionary fossils, Java Man. Who's ever heard of Java Man? I had a picture of him here somewhere. You would recognize him. He looks like the Geico Caveman. This looks like a caveman, right? This is Java Man. And I remember seeing, uh, seeing him and hearing of him when I was in uh, high school class. I graduated in 1991. That was forever ago. But I remember hearing about Java Man. Java Man was, uh, was, a, was at a dig. Eugene Dubois was digging in Indonesia in 1892. He found Java Man, and he proudly proclaimed that Java Man dated back half a million years. How he knew that, I'm not sure. He didn't explain himself. He said that Java Man dated back half a million years and represents a stage in the development of modern man from smaller brain ancestors. What is not so well known is that Java Man consisted of a skull cap, a femur bone, and three teeth. Just a skull cap and three teeth. Today, modern scientists don't even believe that the femur bone that was found with Java Man belonged to Java Man. A skull cap and three teeth. And from that, we determined that this must be the missing link. By today's standards, Dubois' excavation would have disqualified the fossil from consideration. Scientists today don't even believe the femur belongs to the skull cap. According to the Cambridge University anatomist, I am terrible. I'm not a scientist. But I've dug into these things for myself because I don't understand them. And so I'm looking into it and I'm saying, wait a second. This is the stuff that's been pulled on me in high school. This is the stuff I hear on the news every time I flip on the news. Every time I look into National Geographic or turn on a History Channel, this is the stuff that I'm reading and hearing. Sir Arthur Keith says that the skullcap was distinctively human and reflected a brain capacity well within the range of humans today. Like I said, I graduated in 1991. I remember hearing about Java Man. In 1994, Time Magazine ran an article by Mike, Michael Limnick titled How Man Began. This ran on the March 14, 1994 uh, article and prominently featured Java Man, even though by then he had been completely dismissed by the scientific community. Even though dismissed, we're still going to purport that this is what we believe in. Lee Strobel states that Java Man's fall from grace is instructive. It highlights how many people, including myself, become adherents of Darwinism through fossils or other evidence that later discoveries have either undermined or disproved. But the damage is already done. The student, unaware of these subsequent findings, has already graduated into full-fledged naturalism. You see, I'm just barely scratching the surface today. And yet, as I scratch just the surface, everything comes unraveled. And i got to wonder, why is it 
why is it so bad to believe that there is actually a God? Of course, the number one compelling, most compelling argument that we hear probably every single day, if you look into any kind of media, if you flip on the TV at all, if you, if you do anything, you hear this argument over and over and over, and it's the age of the earth. It's radiometric or, or carbon dating. And so as, as we do these scientific methods, we find out the age of rocks and plants and animals and organic matter. And so I want to I dig into that. And so as I dug into that, I had to understand what exactly is it they're talking about. When they talk about carbon dating, all they're talking about is the carbon in the air. There's carbon in our air. Our, our atmosphere is mainly nitrogen and oxygen. And then there's a very, very, very tiny percent of carbon. Well, as, as the sun's rays come through the atmosphere, and the atmosphere is about 100 miles thick, the sun's rays come through the atmosphere, it knocks some of those nitrogen molecules around, it excites them, and they turn into carbon-14, a radioactive form of carbon. Carbon is, uh, it wants to break back down into, into C12. So right now, it, all that carbon radiation is trying to lose atoms in order to stabilize itself. So it's got a half-life. Every 5,730 years, it halves its life. So you take that carbon-14, we know the rate of carbon-14 that's being created every day, we know the rate of absorption. The rate of absorption is people like you and me and our animals and our dogs, we all breathe this stuff. The plants breathe it in carbon dioxide because that C14 attaches to oxygen and you get CO2, carbon dioxide, which is what plants breathe. So the plants breathe it, the people breathe it, the people eat the plants that breathe it. And so we right now, our bodies have approximately 0. 0.000... 0.765% carbon-14 in them. Okay, that's at the current rate of, of, uh, of production, if you will. We know how fast this stuff deteriorates, 5,730 years. And so with a mathematical formula, we can figure out, okay, if the half-life is that, then we can do this test and we can find out how much carbon-14 is in this dead thing, because when it's dead, it stops eating and it stops breathing, so it stops absorbing. So now we can figure out how much carbon-14 is in that. By, by multiplying its half-life. And so with these tests, that's what carbon dating is all about. Because it's 5,730 years, that's a half-life. Then it's half of that, and then it's half of that. By the time you get to 10 half-lives, which is about 57,000 years, there is so little carbon-14 that you can't even measure it. Okay, matter of fact, the scientific community today says that you can only use carbon dating to date something within about three or 4,000 years. You can't use it to accurately date anything beyond, certainly beyond 30,000 years or 50,000 years. There's just not enough there to even measure. Interestingly enough, how, how old is the Earth? 4.54 billion years old? So, there should be a bunch of stuff on this Earth that has zero carbon-14 atoms in it. Coal. Half of us are from Pennsylvania and West Virginia. Coal was formed 250 million years ago. Because it was formed so long ago, it therefore obviously has no carbon-14 atoms in it, right? Except it does. It has carbon-14 in it. You've never been told that. I've never been told this. Diamonds. You can't contaminate a diamond. The diamond's the hardest substance on Earth. You can't contaminate that. Diamonds have carbon-14 in them. There's not a single thing on this Earth that's been discovered that does not have carbon-14 in it. At the current rate of absorption, the, the, the carbon-14 that's being created versus what's being absorbed, 
Equilibrium, if we started at day zero, equilibrium would be created within 30,000 years, the scientists tell us. And yet, the Earth today has not reached the state of, of equilibrium. But somehow, the Earth is 4.54 billion years old. Now, when we talk about other forms of dating, like radiometric dating, it's the same concept. With, the, with carbon dating, we're talking about carbon-14 that's in the air. When you talk about, uh, um, well, I'll have to read my notes here because I've already forgotten, uranium-lead dating or potassium-argon dating, it's the same concept. We know that this rock has minerals in it that has potassium that's trying to break down into argon. And so we know the half-life of that is 1.3 billion years. I don't know how we know that, but we're assuming that it's 1.3 billion years because really smart guys said that's the half-life of potassium breaking down into argon. So 1.3 billion years, we're going we're gonna to multiply or divide that half-life, and we're going to determine how old this rock is. So, um, interestingly, uh, with, the, with the Earth being 4.54 billion years old, uh, I lost my place. Hang on a second here. James Dawson. Here's where I'm getting to. James Dawson was a chief of engineering and operations for lunar and Earth science at NASA. He tested moon rocks that were brought back from 1969. One of the rocks was divided into six pieces, and they all tested from 2.5 to 4.6 billion years old using potassium-argon dating. Same rock, getting multiple different results. Happens over and over and over. When we talk about carbon dating, in 1963, two scientists named Keith and Anderson tested a living mollusk. They used carbon dating to test this mollusk that was alive, and they found out that the mollusk had died 2,300 years ago. In 1971, a freshly killed seal, they knew that they had just killed the seal, they did the dating method on it, found out it had been dead for 1,300 years. In 1972, material from layers where dinosaur bounds were found, they were carbon dated. They were found to be 34,000 years old. And that's, uh, that's quoted from R. Daly's Earth's Most Challenging Mysteries, printed in 1972. So we've known all along that there are massive problems with carbon dating and potassium-argon dating and all these different dating methods. In 1981, uh, in the Anthropological Journal of Canada, it's quoted that the troubles of radiocarbon dating are undeniably deep and serious. Despite 35 years of technological refinement and better understanding, the underlying assumptions have been strongly challenged and warnings are out that the radiocarbon dating may soon find itself in a crisis situation. It says that continuing use of these methods depends on a fix-it-as-we-go approach. It should be no surprise that fully half the dates are rejected. So when something doesn't line up, they toss the date out. The wonder is that any of the accepted dates are actually uh, remain. The accepted dates turn out to be actually selected dates. A long paragraph just to say that this doesn't work. We only make it work. We, we get it to work when we get it to work. When we get the number we want, then it works. Interestingly enough, if we know the age of something, radiometric dating does not work. If we don't know the age of it, absolutely, it works. The Earth is 4.54 billion years old, and we're going to stand by that. Uranium lead dating was used to date the rock in Australia, and that's where we get our 4.54 billion years from. Yet every other time we use this dating method on something that we know, it's never right. But it has to be true. Because how else are you going to be able to explain sedimentary layers? How else can you explain the Grand Canyon? How else can you explain the Continental Divide? 
you know, evolution has to be true. Lee, Lee Strobel said that it was very freeing to be an atheist. He said that he no longer felt bound to a God with strict moral codes. He said, I get to be the boss of me, and I completely understand that. I kind of like being the boss of me. But none of the evidence stacks up for it. Number one, you can't recreate this in a test tube. There's no fossil evidence anywhere. We've had misleading and outright falsehoods. We've been lied to. We've been hoodwinked on a lot of this evolutionary theory stuff. And yet, we no longer even call it a theory anymore. Let me give you the last example. Sunday, May 18, 1980. The residents of Skamania County, Washington, woke up to a 5.1 earthquake on the Richter scale, 5.1. It was Mount St. Helen erupting. Now, if you go onto YouTube or you go to National Geographic or you go to any source, you can see videos of, of Mount St. Helen actually erupting. It was a massive and cataclysmic event. Matter of fact, when it erupted, molten and liquefied rock was exposed to the lower atmosphere of the Earth, and it blew up 80,000 feet into the air. That's 15 miles into the air. When you take a transatlantic flight, you're only flying at 40,000 feet. 80,000 feet of ash and molten lava and sulfur rose up into the air. And this huge cataclysmic event that melted, it took off the north side of the mountain, it melted all the snow, melted the glacier, and it created a mudslide that slid at 90 miles an hour for 50 miles. It killed everything within a 45-mile radius. It was 500 times more powerful than the bomb we dropped on Hiroshima to end World War II. Mount St. Helen was a disaster, an absolute cataclysmic disaster that happened in the modern age of science. The problem with evolution is that it's not observable. But some would say that the problem with creation is that it's not observable. And yet the creationists, the people that claim that Genesis is actually true, they point back to a passage in Genesis called Genesis chapter 7 called the Flood. And they say that a lot of what we see on this earth is a result of the Flood. The evolutionist says, well, it took millions and millions of years. National Geographic... Um, uh, recently, in 2008, according to Science Journal, not National Geographic, Science Journal, in 2008 said that the Grand Canyon was formed millions of years, and it was finally finished 17 million years ago. And it took millions and millions of years to form the, the Grand Canyon, finally finished up about 17 million years ago. Problem is, nobody was around to observe it back then. The creationist says, we can actually observe science happening in today's world. Look at Mount St. Helen. Look up on YouTube and see what Mount St. Helen did. It is a window into Genesis chapter 7. That 90-mile-an-hour mudslide that slid for 50 miles, it carved a canyon 150 feet deep in minutes. Not days, weeks, months, years, millions of years. Minutes carved 150 feet deep. And we saw this with our very own eyes, and we can still see it with our very own eyes. The, in 1992, Dr. Steve Austin took samples of the lava dome that had formed at Mount St. Helen. Now, part of the, part of the um, scientific process uh, when you're doing potassium-argon dating or any other kind of dating is that when a volcano erupts, it melts all the, all the rock, it melts out all the minerals, so all, all the, uh, it resets the clock because it takes all the minerals out and uh, this molten rock is exposed to the current atmosphere. It solidifies, and so now the clock starts ticking all over again. It's a brand new rock. So you'll be able to take this rock. We saw it get formed 
1980, 1992, Dr. Austin took samples, took five samples of the lava dome at Mount St. Helen, sent it off to the laboratory, and said, tell me how old these rocks are. He got the report back a few months later and said, Dr. Austin, you'll be pleased to know that those rocks that you sent us were 350,000 years old, and some of them were 2 billion years old. He said, did you know that that came from Mount St. Helen? And they said, well, you fool, you can't, do a, you can't do this kind of test on a rock that's younger than 2 million years. He said, well, you just told me it was 350,000 years old, so why'd you tell me it was younger than 2 million years? And it's all this circular reasoning that we never, ever get to hear about. You see, that was an observable moment in history, and it scientifically backs up an account that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't back up the theory of evolution, though. You see, none of this does. Our methods, the way that we date things, the way that we manipulate our data, none of that backs up the theory of evolution. And yet, as hard as we try, it seems that everything starts to point to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 7. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there was a flood, a cataclysmic event. Paul the Apostle Paul, you know, I'm a preacher, so I got to get some, I got to get some Bible in here. The Apostle Paul, almost 2,000 years ago, wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And in the very beginning of that letter, in the first chapter, we would read it today as Romans chapter 1, verse 19. He says, the truth about God is instinctively known. God has put this knowledge in the hearts of mankind. From the time the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky and all that God has made. People can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So there is no excuse whatsoever for not knowing God. Yet, although God is known, people have not honored Him as God or given Him thanks, and so they have become futile in their thinking and their hearts are foolish and dark. Claiming to be wise, they have become utter fools. Harsh, critical words from Paul. But man, how do they ring true? You see, I'm not a scientist. And I, I've already admitted that, and I'll guarantee if Richard Dawkins were here, and he's the world's leading atheist, uh, he would run circles around me and make me look foolish. But you see, the evidence for God creating all this beauty that we see, we can look around it and we say, wow, that's amazing. We can look at the complexity of the DNA. We can look at the adaptation of the species, and we say, that's amazing. What a thoughtful and amazing God. But that is not the evidence for there being an actual God. The evidence for there actually being a God is right here. Because I know what God did in my life. I know the road that I was going down. I know what I was headed for. And I know what God did when he reached in and he took hold of my life. And he reached out and he touched my heart. And so I don't care what Richard Dawkins has to say. And I don't care what Ernest Mayer has to say. And I don't care what National Geographic or, or the Scientific Journal or any of those guys have to say. Because I look back at this and say, professing themselves to be wise, they've become utter fools. I am so thankful that God found me worthy to send his son Jesus to this earth and rescue me. And that's the foundation that I'm going to go with for the next several weeks. Is there a God? You can't convince me otherwise. If there's a God, has he revealed himself to us? And what does that look like in the future? We're going to look at these topics the next couple weeks. I invite you to come and join us. If you have any questions on anything I said today, I'd be happy to give you my notes and steer you in the right direction. God, thank you for today thank you for revealing yourself to us. I believe that you're real. I believe that as I look around at creation, I just can't help myself but to admit there is a God and he does indeed love us. Would you make yourself known to every single person here? 
We love you. We look forward to what you have in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Have a great race tomorrow.